0: following program is produced by the align in the sound team if you like what you hear please stick around at the end of the show to find out more contact us and contribute towards a positive future that was the great warumpy band the wonderful warumpy band and we played from the bush because we're going to be talking to a man who is from the bush now um this week we welcome back Gillar Michael Anderson, last surviving member of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy's founding four people. Uh, Gillar is an Aboriginal rights activist and leader of the Ualii tribe in northwestern New South Wales and Queensland. He was a leader in the Australian Black Power Movement and was appointed by his peers as the first Aboriginal ambassador to White Australia after he and three comrades established what was later called the Aboriginal Tent Embassy on the front lawns of Parliament House in 1972. He's now coordinator of the Interim National Unity Government of the Sovereign Union. He's taught U-A-L-E-I, He was taught ULEI customs and traditions through his people's sacred ceremonies and he's a senior lawman. In 1979, he was appointed to the Office of the Public Prosecutions in Criminal Law as an instructing officer in the state of New South Wales. He has lectured in... Aboriginal Studies and Aboriginal Politics at several Australian universities, writing and teaching units in Aboriginal Studies, and has also played professional rugby league. He lives on and runs a sheep and cattle property on his ancestral lands on both sides of the New South Wales and Queensland border in the Lower Boulogne River system. And, Gillard, you can correct anything now that I've got wrong
1: there. <laughs> no, 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 no. You did fine, thank you.
0: <laughs> no worries. Yeah, so, uh, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, mate. Um, Yeah, sparking on all cylinders. Um, um, Yeah, had a greased oil change a few years ago, so um, I think I'm ready for another another fifty
0: years. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. So yes, that's right. The the tent embassy, the Aboriginal embassy, has just had its uh, fiftieth anniversary in the last couple of days. Um, I was uh, there for one march. but there was much else that went on. Can you give us a rundown of, of the, the activities?
1: Well, yeah, there was. Um, yeah, it, it was all fine. You know, a lot of people, um, or some, not a lot. Some people were concerned that um, you know one group went one way, and um, those who travelled with me in the march up to uh, the new Parliament House um, um, stuck with me as they um, wanted to sort of make that point, and I you know, basically walking up to uh, new parliament houses to just remind them of the fact that, you know, we have an issue that's continuing. And, um, and by the symbolism with turning off down the bottom there um, at the express wishes of uh, the ACT authorities and, and police, um, certainly, you know, I saw it as freezing our fight in time. And um, that was not, that didn't go down too well with me. That's why I instructed our people that we are going to the new Parliament House to remind them um, that this is an ongoing issue, and, uh, 19, and you know, 1972 did not end the struggle, and uh, 50 years on, the struggle is still here, and uh, so we're we're making this work, and uh, that's why I took them up to the top of that hill. A lot of it is, you know, symbolism. Um, as it was when we set up the embassy in the first place. Um, But uh, right now it's more than symbolism. Um, We're seeking solutions, and as I've been saying to people, you don't ask white people, the oppressive, to uh, help us with our solution. No, we have to find those solutions, and we have to take it on board and take the responsibilities for locating those solutions and making them work.
0: Yeah, yeah. yes. What were some of the other... um activities that went on for the for this anniversary
1: well um we went down and um and of course uh there was a lot of dancing there was singing um um we went down and we joined up i went down um, back down and uh to the young ones where they were and and we had a panel um down there when i arrived down and uh we got up and i invited um and i wanted them to stand with me um, the children of Billy Craigie, the children of Bertie Williams. And I reported to everybody that um, um, in 2021, um, I'd, all, I'd gone up to, in October, uh, to Townsville, <clears throat> and I met with uh, Tony Curry's eldest son and explained what was being planned. And uh, it was wonderful to meet up with Tony's um, elder son. And uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID situation, he he was not able to come down to be present with us. But nonetheless, the fact that I went up and had talks with him up in um, Townsville um, helped me sort of um, offer my appreciation for his father's support at that time.
0: Yeah, nice one. So there was a conference uh, just yesterday, wasn't there? Can tell us about it? Yeah, there
1: was. Yeah, we uh, we had a conference um, at... uh, Albert Hall, and it was about um, where do we go from here, basically, and um, the central theme was where do we go from here, um, with a um, sub-clause which basically said, well, um, you know, if we're arguing that sovereignty never ceded, um, the question then is, we are many nations, uh, many nations uh, with very vast uh, linguistics. Uh, and out, and we are not, an, you know, we're not an homogenous nation of people. We are, in fact, many nations who are very different from each other. And even within those nations, of, you know, I always emphasize this point to my children and to people I teach. Within those nations, we have to respect the fact that there are clan groups within those nations. And so those, those clan groups have responsibility for their own country within their own nation. And um, and they they meet when they have ceremony. They meet on other occasions as well, as a, as one group, one linguistical group. But the rule is one group uh, cannot make a decision for the other group because you're you're in, impacting on the sovereign integrity of those uh, uh, way. Of, if you go into other country, you're, you're in, you know you're imposing on the sovereign integrity of another nation state. Uh, and if you come back in within our own territories. Um, culturally you um, will be imposing upon this sovereign integrity of the clan groups and so we you know unfortunately for many in this country because you know the impact of colonization has sort of torn a lot of that apart the very fabric of that society um, many of our young people today um, um, are asking me okay I, you, you know you know those rules and um, um, and i've Talk with other elders around the country because I've been through ceremony with other people throughout the country. So I am part of that whole unit, connecting our song lines across this country, and they all have similar, um, similar rules. And so we have to begin to respect those. And then, um, now we have to start healing from within. We have to heal our own nations. We have to um, create that identity again and, and identify how that identity is and understand the rules that govern their, their systems and their societies. They, they are not too dissimilar from each other, and that's what makes uh, makes this work. Um, and so um, yesterday we talked about the legals around this, and um, I identified all of the recognition uh, uh, that has been given to Aboriginal people by the British since occupation. And uh, we even have legal decisions in court it identifies and, 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 and affirms in court decisions um, that Aborigines are the sovereigns of the soil. I also showed them yesterday that uh, the Federal Parliamentary Committee on Constitutional Legal Affairs, um, how in their, in their report 200 years um, later, the uh, treaty compact with Makarada um, the report to the Parliament by that Senate Standing Committee on Constitutional and Legal Affairs in 83 said to the Parliament that, you know, if we do a, a fair, much more honest appreciation of the situation of Aborigines at the time of uh, settlement, um, or we call it invasion, um, then the sovereignty inherent in the Aboriginal people at that time. And so I'm saying to the people well, then we should ask the government and everybody else, not, you know, the government here, you can't talk to them, they're idiots. Um, but um, they they wouldn't understand. Of course, they're going to protect their own interests by saying, oh, well, you know, we didn't, we don't have to worry about that. But, you know, the question has to go back to England, and that is, when did uh, sovereignty exchange hands? When did we give up our sovereignty to the British and to the settlers? Um, I've, I've been subpoenaing documents around this country, uh, we've got enough court cases now to show quite clearly that none of that ever happened, and so you know, sovereignty um, is a persistent um, thing within our within this nation, and um, you know, and that's represented by the fact that they fly three flags. That is the um, the Australian flag, the federal flag. They fly the Aboriginal flag, and they fly the Torres Strait Islander flag. Now people need to take notice of the fact that that's a representation of recognition of the sovereignty, of coexisting sovereigns uh, within this nation. And so if they have two, if there are coexisting sovereigns within this nation, well, then there's two laws in this, or three laws in this country. And, um, yeah, and we need to start talking honestly about that.
0: Yeah, so just uh, for the listeners who might not have um, had the time to think about it a lot, the definition of sovereignty I use is... Uh, the ability to create and enforce rules in your own territory. Does that fit with yours?
1: Yes. It's, you know, like we, a lot of Aboriginal elders will tell you, you know, that we have laws, we've had laws here, you know, from the time of creation. And those laws, we have those laws. And people say, well, where are they written? You know, um, there's no written law. And that's what the British used to sort of say that there was this country was terra nullius. Um, but the fact is that um, our laws are, in fact, ritual laws, ritual um, statutes. And when you when you work out the definition of ritual statutes, it's the dendroglyphs that they cut down from my country, um, the Gumroy Ualiya country, and took them and put them in museums. They're the carved trees, yeah? Um, and they're scattered throughout the Wiradjuri nation as well. Now, um, the other part is that there are rock paintings in different places now you go into the uh, Warren Bungles, you go into um, you go into uh, the Nandua Ranges you go into the um, uh, what do you call it the um, Wadigan Mountains in Newcastle uh, the Hunter Valley, there are, carved, there are paintings there, there are etchings around Bondi, there are etchings around um, uh, rock carving, sorry around um, La Perouse, around uh, Bondi, around Coogee uh, Taramara, um, and there's there's rock carvings in Central Australia. There's rock carvings all over this country. There are cave paintings in Kimberleys and and in um, in the Northern Territory and Arnhem Land. Now, when you read those things and you get the elders to translate those things, they don't normally translate all of them, of course, because there's a lot of sacred law. But you see, that's our writing, that's like the hieroglyphs of Egypt, that's telling the story, except that ours is different from the hieroglyphs, you know, um, um, in Egypt. Ours is telling the story of creation, and those are our ritual statutes that tell us all the stories that govern our society, and we have ceremony and song, and there's no better way to pass on knowledge than through song and music and dance, Uh, because you see, when you learn that You don't change it, you sing it as it is, as it's taught to you. And that's the best way of transferring uh, messages and story and laws onto people by song. And our people always said, we are not clever enough, we are not wise enough like the old creators to be able to change the laws that were given to us and that's why we stick strictly to those laws.
0: Yeah, and I guess when you say songs... uh People might think of a three-and-a-half-minute pop song, but you're talking more like the Ring Cycle, aren't you? Yes, we are. A huge, long thing that may go for days.
1: Well, they, they do go for days and they sing, but we have songs for all the creation songs. You know, everything that happened, we sing those songs. We also have the dance, because... And the dance, if I can just say this, the dances that, um, that we have is after the, like, say, the goanna. Um, so we do a dance. Uh, we sing that Goanna song, but we also sing um, and we and we perform when he came out of the ground, and we show how he walked, how he how he how he walked across country, and so the dance is a replica, is a is a reminder and a demonstration of how that Goanna started walking on country when he was when he was created and when he was born from the land, and when he rose out of the land. How he walked the land. and so that's what that demonstration is when we dance. So we sing that song of his creation, of him coming out of the land, and we sing that song, and then the men and the women and some women, not all, but they will dance how that how that fellow moved across country then. and so so we're telling the story of the of the of these things that have happened in this country and the and their origin. and so the songs, and then we have not only the songs, but we have the carvings, we have the paintings, we have the demonstra- the, the depictions in, our, in, our, in the dendroglyphs of all of these things, and they tell the story. And these, um, these, so these, uh, this artwork that's right around this country that is being destroyed, actually, by mining companies now, is being deliberately permitted by the government because they realise now we did not destroy their art there and this art is, in fact, our ritual statutes of what you establishes our title
0: to this country. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, title to the country. I mean, you've been neck deep in in whitefella law since the seventies, really. Um, not necessarily practicing, but you've been in the thick of it, and. Um, What's the relation of the Queen to Australia? We think we're very independent here, but uh, can you have a riff on that?
1: Well, somebody needs to really, um, you know, have a, <laughs> I think, a very serious wake-up call and um, have a very, very cold shower. Um, <laughs> um, because the fact is that um, Australia's sovereignty, even to this day, does not come from the people. It does not come from the land. Australian sovereignty comes from the sovereign authority of the Queen of England right now. So the monarchy of England has um, imposed a feudal system upon this country, and it is a feudal system, let me tell you. It is a feudal system, and they've imposed a feudal system upon this country, and they assume title to this land. Now, um, having done all that research over the last 35 years, one of the things that, um, that's, that sticks out that's so obvious um, when you understand the legal system and uh, the legal hierarchy, you begin to realise that um, the land tenure in this country, um, even when you read Mabo, the High Court decision, the Mabo High Court decision could not give you and to the Australian and set it in law in this country according to their common law the type of tenure that takes away Aboriginal title to this land. And so you, when you read the Mabo decision, the Mabo decision says that land it held in this country is held in a tenure of some kind. That's the exact wording, right? And so they're unable to give you a descriptive uh, type of tenure. Now, when I examined uh, England and examined the legal system and, in relation to land, um I found out, realized that um, the Crown of England never, ever came here and took possession at all by conquest or other. And so, and the Crown never traveled around talking to all the tribes and the rulers and chiefs and asked them for permission to occupy their land or to use their land. Now... Um, that never happened. And when you look at that uh, in America and Canada, and you do some comparisons, and New Zealand, by the way, um, you'll find that the people's resistance um, forced them to uh, to come and uh, and talk. Now, here in Australia, um, as King William IV said in, in 1825, uh, in his address to Parliament, we have said, sent the dregs of our society among them, and we've we've we armed them with the two worst kinds of um, of destructive elements that one could ever offer, and that is brandy and gunpowder. And so, and then when you look at the 1837 reports on the inquiry into the killing of Aborigines in the in the British settlements, um, you will find that they said there uh, the first um, first. Uh, uh, Attorney General to Australia, a bloke by the name of Sax Bannister, he reported that the governors should have a charter of uh, that they should follow in relation to how they deal with Aborigines. And there should be these rules identified for every every governor as to have the rules of engagement in relation to working with Aboriginal people. Because uh, Sax Bannister was concerned because he used a quote and he, and he, he, he quoted uh, or he is quoted as saying um, that, you know, when the Aborigines evinced themselves to defend themselves uh, against the intrusion of people upon their country, uh, they were driven back into the bush um, like uh, like uh, kangaroos and dogs. And so it showed the disrespect that the colonists had for Australia and these free settlers. And so all they did was just, you know, just come onto the land. If people objected, they shot them. In other places, um, uh, domesticating resistance, um, book uh, that talks about the North Coast of New South Wales. Mate, there's a there's a very gr- there's a great chronological um, expose uh, in that book of how they poisoned waterholes, and um, and Aboriginal people just died at these at these uh, waterholes um, after they drank the water. And so, uh, you know, like when when we talk about the reality and talking about the historical um, truth. Of this country, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty nasty, gruesome one. Um, but then on the other hand, um, when you look at the instructions that were given from England, um, how to deal with Aboriginal people, um, the governors and the colonialists just totally ignored them. <clears throat> and unfortunately, we're here, and, unfo- and every time they look at a black villain out, they realize their failures, and now they got no bloody idea how to deal with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that uh, coming and negotiating treaties is one form of, of getting sovereignty, and I suppose war must be another one. Are there any others?
1: Um, session. Uh, it's where people um, will acquiesce and sign over rights in relation to that and say, well, OK, we will cede our rights and for you to govern us, but here are the conditions, yeah? And so it's like a bit of a peace settlement, and... Um, and um, even though um, a peace settlement basically de- uh, is the first step uh, towards negotiating a treaty, uh, it's not the end all, it's just the beginning. And um, and so Aboriginal people want to deal. But I, I warn Aboriginal people in this country not to negotiate with the colonialists, Because if you look at the powers of a state, let's say New South Wales, for example, New South Wales wants to negotiate a treaty with Aborigines. Well, first of all, the Aborigines need to have a look at the limitations on that on the, on that state as to what they can and can't negotiate under their constitution, because they because they're limited by what their constitution says. And so, I warn people. And being the former uh, research director for the na- the development of a uh, of a national framework for a treaty for Aboriginal people, from uh, I did that from eighty one to eighty five. Um, it's, it's extremely important that they understand that you're wasting your time trying to negotiate with the state because the state governments are limited to what their constitution says. In if the the recommendation that I made to the National Aboriginal Conference, who were my bosses and who were negotiating the treaty with the Malcolm Fraser government, um we were laying out the framework and laying out the legals around this. And um, when my when I did a lot of work in England, looking at the treaty and particularly focusing on um, the unification of England with Scotland, Ireland and Wales and Britain, um, I realized that, hang on a minute, you've got to do this arrangement. This arrangement has to be done with the Crown, right? Uh, because the Crown are claiming uh, title to our country, when in fact, They've never been here, so they could not claim possessory title. They've never been here. And the only way they can claim possessory title is by the fact that they came here and they conquered it, right? Or we ceded to it, or, you know, or we, we acquiesced in some way. That never happened. That's why it's important when people march and say we never ceded sovereignty. <coughs> so, uh, so the Crown does not have title to this country, possessory title, because the Crown has never been here, um, and um, and you know we just had these you know ignorant um, ignorant um, colonialists who um, you know King William said were the dregs of their society in England. Um, so you know so we were dealing with the dregs of England, um, and we continue to do so. Just look at Scott Morrison. <laughs> yeah, um, he's a classic example. Now the the the, the position basically then is. As I said to the National Aboriginal Conference um, uh, Subcommittee, who were um, guiding this um, process in developing a national framework for a treaty, I said to them, you have to go to England. We have to go to England and we have to talk to the monarch, and we have to put our proposals to the monarch, because, you see, Australia does not have its own sovereignty. Australia, the Australian people, there is no sovereignty in this country that belongs to Australia. Have a deep look and a closer look at the fact that we operate under the sovereignty of the British monarch, who's laid claim to this country. And so, talking to uh, talking to the pencil sharpeners here in Australia, like the state governments and and the federal government, because I call them all pencil sharpeners of the crown, um, and uh, they they write. They write their laws here because they, you know, they think that they they're clever at governance. They, you know, they, when you look at the Scott Morrison's government, they're, they're a bunch of idiots. Um, and every and I think every Australian knows that. Um, so, so we need we need proper direction, and the and the, and the proper direction basically is, um, uh, and I'm trying to tell my all over this country. You're wasting your time talking to these pencil sharpeners. The people that count is in England and we need to get to talk to the Privy Council um, and direct to the Queen we need to commence those discussions with the Crown um, in England and uh, of course we'll end up being, or the Queen is then guided by the Privy Privy Councillors and of course um, a very good uh, method to do that is to go through the Parliament of England and put out submissions to the the Parliament and then the, the Parliament, the Prime Minister then is obligated to talk about his business uh, affairs every morning of what went on in England at the time. And so he has to brief the Crown because they're operating under the Crown as well. And um, and they will raise those issues. And I think um, it would be a very good idea for us to squat in front of Buckingham Palace until someone talks to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, set up another embassy over mm-hmm. there. No, absolutely. <laughs> so what's the role of the Governor-General and, and the State Governors?
1: Well, they're the proxies for the crown, yeah, and um, and and you know, like a lot of Australians don't realise that the people they elect in this country to govern, whether it be, be state or federal or territory. The fact is that the um, the governors, um, the the executive council of the state that are elected, that to to legitimise their meetings, that executive council. To legitimise their meetings, they must have the governor or the governor general chairing that meeting every time they meet. Otherwise, that meeting is illegal. Yeah, and not many people understand that. And so the the uh, the governor mm-hmm. and the governor general they validate those meetings by their very presence, because without the crown's representative, the monarch's representative, at those meetings, the the issues are not legal. And so the internal operations of the politics. You may, you know, people may elect a government in this country, whether it's state or or Commonwealth, but the fact is that they then have to go, after they're elected, they then have to go and be be, um, uh, authorised to govern, and they're authorised to govern and take their place uh, to govern, for and on behalf of the Crown, and they have to go and make sure that... um, the Crown's representative, um, the Governor and the Governor-General, swear them in to take um, uh, their legal position uh, to make decisions for and on behalf of the Crown of England.
0: Yeah, and I guess while while the citizens don't have the power to revoke a a Prime Minister or a Parliamentarian, the the Queen and their representatives do, don't they? There's a couple of examples of that, isn't there?
1: Oh, yes, that's right. There's been two Prime Ministers sacked in this country. One of the last of whom was Gough Whitlam. Um, now they, they suggested that um, yeah we need to make a break from that, and then everybody sort of talks about oh you know Bob Ork and Gareth Evans and Gareth Evans and uh, Michael Lavarch, you know travelled over to England um, to negotiate the Australia Act. Now the Australia Act doesn't do much at all, other than say that we no longer have uh, recourse until Lodge appealed against High Court decisions in Australia and then taken to England to the Privy Council, um, who had the power to override our High Court decisions here. And I think the last one was uh, that went overseas was um, the Kawada case, when Yelke Peterson wouldn't transfer land to Aboriginal people in the Gulf, um, in um, up in the Gulf of um, Carpentaria uh, in Queensland um that was the last case i think that went to the privy council i stand corrected on that but in relation to aborigines i think that was the last one and so um bob pool and his um and his cronies decided that well, we're going over there to sort of make a break the other thing that they did with the australia act was if you look at the uh, the, the australia act um nearly um took away the power of the, of the uh, Parliament of England to make laws for Australia as well. And if they're made for Australia from England and signed and into law by the Queen herself, well, then those laws would override everything here in Australia, any laws that have, that's, that's been made in, in, in Australia. Um, and then the other thing that uh, they did was that they said that um, England, or that any laws that Australia makes in terms of state parliament or a Commonwealth parliament, uh, and they may be repugnant to the laws of England, um, then those laws um, are permitted to stand and England would not interfere with that and change those laws or uh, and override those laws that may be repugnant to their laws in England. Um, you know, they're, they're the, they're the, that's, the, that's basically the guts of, of, of saying, well, that's giving you independence to make your laws and we won't come over there and just crush you if we if we think you're doing the wrong thing, yeah? Um, so that's uh, so. Now they they say that you know that gave Australia's its independence and sovereignty. Rubbish. Um, A bit more until, like an
0: autonomy situation, really, isn't it?
1: That's all. That's all it was. It was just just reinforcing autonomy uh, of the of the governments to be able to make laws, even if they're repugnant to the laws of England, and and also um, it also then gave uh, the courts as well. Um, the right to bypass English precedent law and establish our own precedents in this country, but then when you when you've got a, when you're operating in a colonial system uh, here in Australia, uh, the trouble is you've got judges in this country, like the Mabo uh, judges in the High Court, who um, clearly rested the law under themselves uh, when they said that they did not have to conform to international law when they decided whether Aboriginal land rights and Aboriginal title uh, was remaining in Australia because they said we cannot. I think I think the quote goes something, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, um, I think the quote goes something like, um, um, uh, the law, um, uh, if we, we cannot conform uh, to international norms if those laws um, yeah, fracture the skeletal framework that gives our body, its, it, our law, its uh, body and form and shape. And so they can't. Uh, they said that they could not um, allow um, or could not reinforce contemporary international laws um, in relation to Aboriginal rights uh, if they were to fracture the skeletal framework that gave Australia its body and law. Now that's very telling. Um, that. And, and I think, you know, you can write a PhD on that, um, some, some clever young lawyer out there, because what what, that's, what they did there was actually um, discriminate against Aboriginal people's rights. Um, and, uh, and by reinforcing and imposing upon a, a system of laws uh, that transgresses and that, that, um, that just completely uh, ignores international norms as it stood at the time in 1972, uh, 1992, sorry. So, yeah, we, we need to look very carefully at this here and um, and understand that, that that high court, as far as I'm concerned, um, that's tantamount amount to treason, and, um, and they, they acted in a treasonous way by not conforming to international law and making a decision in accordance with that.
0: Yeah, interesting. So we've, we've got a reasonable idea of the, the white fella side of things now. So let's go back to, to the idea of sovereignty as the ability to make and enforce laws in your own territory and the clan. Can you, I guess, start with uh, what sort of scale is, is sovereignty on in the old system in this country and how, how does it move upwards?
1: Um, well, the way in which, when we look at it um, closely, from a you know, from a from an Aboriginal perspective from the ground, we had a system of law and governance in place went well before, you know, like I always look at the Neanderthal man in Europe. You know, he was still walking along, dragging his knuckles, trying to learn how to how to stand upright and walk and live in a, some sort of ordered society. Um, and while he was doing that. We were walking around the upright and at an ordered, ordered society, very well organised. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they're late bloomers, the Europeans. Um, and so, I, I'm, I'm saying to people that um, that that society that we have, our laws come from the celestial laws. They are celestial laws. And when you look at celestial laws, um, they equate to the canon law um, that operates within the within the Christian Christian world. And um, so, if you look at canon law, uh, then the gov- what what governs the canon law is ecclesiastical law. They have their own systems. They have their own legal systems that run and govern uh, that eccles- that, um, that those laws, those ecclesiastical laws. And of course, they have an internal operation of governance uh, in relation to the churches and how they operate them. And also, they have their own um, yeah councils uh, that uh, preside over people breaking those laws, etc. So they they have a a complete, independent system. Now, our system of laws is governed by the same. We have uh, celestial laws where you go around and talk to all the people, they will tell you, all the elders, and through the ceremonies, you've learned everything that we have, everything that we do comes comes from celestial law. Now, we have a system of ecclesiastical laws in this country were the elders who who understand those laws and govern those laws, and so you, if you look at, um, um, I suppose the the Anglican Church and how they operate, they have bishops, they have all sorts of people, card, and then in the church, uh, the Catholic Church, they have cardinals, um, and these people, and then you've got the head man, the Pope, and whoever he is in the Anglican Church and other churches, they have a hierarchical structure that governs those systems. Now. I'm telling you this here simply because the, um, there's a division between um, the church and state. And so the parliaments and the courts do not have necessarily have the power to make laws over churches and the rulings that are there within that administration where they govern themselves. Um, so there is a division between state and church. Now, with Aboriginal people, we have our whole society is governed by the celestial law. And so we have, uh, uh, the only division we have here is that the men and women, they make rules, they govern the rules, they govern their society, they govern a social structure, uh, that social structure is to keep harmony within the, within the group. Um, and we have a marriage system based on the promising system, similar to that of um, the Islam. Um, and of course... Australia interfered with that because they're saying you know you can't marry people too young. That's all coming from the uh, the uh, churches and the and the code of conduct of uh, of Western society. Saying and what what people have got to realise, you know, even the Crown back in England and and mm. other places in Germany, like they were marrying off their kids when they were 14, 15 year old. Um, and even the, you know even you, you look at the modern. Um, Period in the 16th, 15th, uh, sorry, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, you know, a lot of a lot of the English mob were were um, were promising marriage to their own cousins, yeah, uh, in England and France and Germany, and and these are the people we look up to, or that society looks up to, and say, you know, they're our leaders, they're our, they're the people who govern us, they're the people who we have to worship, you know, in, in civil society. Um, and and so they make laws that um, that that stop other people from doing these things, uh, when in fact they they're all inbred themselves. Um, and so uh, we you know maybe they are operating on a guilt uh, factor, and trying to impose that guilt factor upon on everybody else and, and tell them how they should live. Um, now, okay, <clears throat> the world has changed, and of course we we can, we have adapted, uh, as with many societies, and so. Um, so this interference um, by the British since they've come sort of, you know, disrupted that. Now, our people have um, now begun a process of adaptation, but a lot of people now are returning back to the law. A lot of our young people are looking for that identity. They're looking for that. And yesterday in our discussion at the conference, you know, the Aboriginal women were saying we have to stop calling ourselves Aborigines. We are Nimba, we are Whalewin, we are you know, Yonge, we are Anung we are who we are yeah, and so we have to get away from being called indigenous, we have to get away from being called Aborigine because that's putting us all into the one basket and uh, that's why the government can get away and make these decisions and when you start doing that, you then get back to that sovereign aspect where the people make their own decisions so the Wiradjuri won't never ever try and make the decision for the Gomrois or the Iwaliais and vice versa. And and we would not expect that the Arnhem Land people would try and force um, their system of governance upon the people of the South or even in Central Australia. The Arnhem don't do it, right? So, so what we have is we have a very confused government in this country and that government basically is saying um, that, you know, this is, the, um, you know, you, you blackfellas have to all be one. Um, now, that doesn't work. Look at how they they're trying to do this voice. No, you can't do that. And so getting back to the sovereign aspects of our nation, we have to respect the individualism of each of those nations. And I think it's vital that we do that. And, uh, and, we, and so Australia has to now do a complete new template on how to deal with Aboriginal people. And sovereignty, um, we are sovereign nations. We have a court case in 1847 that says, that's never been overturned by any precedent in this country, nor by any order of counsel from England, to say, where they said that we are the sovereigns of the soil. Now that's legally recognised in the in the Supreme Court of New South Wales in 1847, and so because we are the sovereigns uh, sovereigns of the soil, in that same court decision, they said that we. The British. We are the intruders. Yeah. Now, people may not think that that's important, but I, I. think, it. It. They do that because they want to ignore it. Yeah. They want. They don't want it to be raised as an issue. And of course, even even um, in that very first case called Murrow, in 18, um, I think it's 1827 or 1831. I will just checked that. But Jack Conder Murrow was taken. He was from the Nepean River. And when they took that man to court for killing and spearing another Aboriginal person in Sydney, um, uh, the the court decided that yes, this man, this Aboriginal man, is subject to English laws, and he's he's a lawyer. And it's actually recorded in as a transcript, part of the transcript of the decision of the judge, that uh, if this man is in fact subject to the English laws, then the proposition that was put to the judge, well, surely his people are entitled. Now to put, lodge a claim against the British for taking his land and be compensated. Now, people in this country, lawyers in this country, try and they, they brush over that. They don't want to go back and visit that. They don't want to analyse that, and they don't want to tell people here in Australia that that decision has never been overturned by a by by another court to this day. So, um, the sovereign aspect of the nations is that we have a governing system in every nation it has been there since, since the beginning of time and so I think what we need to do now is to make sure that these people understand very clearly yeah, that we have a lot of unfinished business in respect to uh, Aboriginal rights in this country and uh, they are yet to do what they should have done in 1788 and so uh, the sovereign nation, uh, sovereignty of the Aboriginal people, persists. Now, here's the other beautiful thing. The evolutionary process of human rights uh, after the Second World War has, in fact, created an, an imposition upon Australia. And Australia has, in fact, brought the, a lot of these laws into their domestic legal system around human rights and other, other aspects like the ICCPR, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, now that's written into the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Act 2009, and if you have a look at that, um, where it's written into that Act, and um, as a uh, where it's uh, part of the Indigenous Land and Sea co- uh, uh, Corporation, those rights that are established allows for us as a people um, to make our own decisions and, um, <clears throat> and 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 be separated from the Parliament. If you look at the Australian Constitution, the Australian Constitution says, and as, as Menti said in 1965, um, when he was, uh, they were debating the uh, establishment of a, the proposition for a, uh, a referendum in 1967, Robert, Sir Robert Menti, was a constitution and legal man himself, an expert, said um, that. Um, we better be careful of what we do with this section, uh, uh, subsection uh, 51 subsection 26, because if we're going to take away, um, and, and we take away the power of the states to govern Aboriginal people, and we invite ourselves into being able to make laws for Aborigines at the Commonwealth level, then he said, the, the, when we do that, um, he said, Aborigines go will fall outside of the law. And what he was saying there is that, uh, the Commonwealth once they make laws, then they have to work out how they're going to make laws for Aborigines. Now, because Aborigines are defined by as a distinct race of people. Now, when we when we examine what Menzies said in that, uh, and it's all recorded in Hansard, when we rec- when we talk about that, we need to look at what does he say when he says we fall outside the law, and so he gave an example. And, and, and this is where, uh, Beasley supported him, uh, Kim Beasley Sr. supported him when Kim Beasley Sr. got up and said, we have examined, because they were looking at, you know, establishing new boundaries and, uh, for electorals, electorates, if they started counting Aborigines and the census. Um, then he said that, he said that, look, uh, are saying, look, we don't want to be able to, um, make discriminatory laws against the aborigines now uh, that goes against iron marsh island um um statement uh where they said they that the constitution could make discriminatory laws um and and they were right of course they were absolutely right but Menzies said no um we we cannot we should not be making discriminatory laws but the taking the amendment of the constitution in 67 will allow the parliament to make special laws and these special measure laws can be made under section 51 subsection 26 because Aborigines are a distinctive race. Now, men, now when when Beasley talked, he said one of the things that we got to look at is that we cannot reach into the states and grant Aborigines citizenship. Now that was 1965. They knew that Aborigines were not citizens of this country in 1965 when they were doing that, and so. If we're not citizens of this country, nor aliens, which is now vindicated by the Thomson Love case, uh, February 2020, um, the, the full bench of the High Court, they rule that Aborigines are neither citizens nor aliens. So what in the world are we? And so where do we stand legally in this country? We stand, as Menzi said, we stand outside the law. And, um, and so these are very real matters that um, the conference focused on yesterday. And we need to get back out to our communities uh, and our nations, not the communities, because communities are made up of people who have been put there because of uh, the way they shoveled them around from one area to another and removed them. And and there's internal fights. Native Title brings this out because there's internal fights within those groups because they're saying, "You, you people don't come from here. You people have been here for 90 years or 80 years. You're married in, some of you. But the fact is you can't make decisions for country because you are a You have an historical association with the land. You are not traditional people. So Native Title has brought that out as a forerunner to any future negotiations that we do going forward to settle our issues. Now, the power of our people is also recognised in, in, um, in that decision um, with the um, um, Toms and Love case because they say there that um, the, the decision by the elders of the nation who make decisions, that's their governance system. And so if the Aboriginal elders make decisions, well, then no court in this country can override the decision of an elder or of elders, a group of elders, because they're operating under their law. And our law is outside that legal system, the Western legal system. And so what we need to do now, before this gets out of hand, we need to pull together the elders from around the country. And I'm working uh, for yesterday's conference. Um, I've already been working around this country, uh, establishing elders' councils around this country. where and This is where the authority of Aboriginal governance lays. So the, the, the sovereign power in this nation is Aboriginal law, which is governed by the elders, we also need to understand that um, the the by age, if you haven't been through a ceremony, well, then you you are an elder by virtue of reaching seventy years old. That's that's what I was always told as a young man. That when they're seventy, you have to take notice of those people. If they're under seventy, you you don't necessarily have to. But then, what overrides the age sector is, in fact, there's a superior power above the elders who are who are who've reached that, that uh that milestone um, are the ones who have gone through the ceremony and they are the ones who are carrying the law and they are they have a superior status to that of an ordinary elder who's never been through the ceremony. And so there's a hierarchical structure within our society and this is how it's governed. And so I've been working with elders around this country who have been through ceremony, who are the leaders, male and female. And um, establishing that process, and I'm, I'm hoping that over the next <clears throat> my next 10 years, um, if um, my my body and my mind stays very alert, um, that I hope to be able to set in place um, a process of governance under our sovereign rules um, on how we shall uh, order this Australian society. Now, Australia can see a lot of confusion because there's so many individual nations and then we have to deal internally with the with the clans as well. But it's not difficult. It's not an impossible task. Um, yeah, it's just restructuring and recognising that Aboriginal people have a method of decision-making under our law and culture, and now we have to nurture that, we have to uh, foster that, and we have to train our people. We have to go back again. And so in order for us to go forward now on the question of sovereignty, we have to step back in time. And um, let me tell you, stepping back in time will, will make you a much stronger person and will, will establish um, power beyond the belief of these young ones who think they know it, but no. When you learn it, you will understand the power of elder statesmanship. And, um, and that's where we have to go. And uh, we have already commenced the process and I have been doing that for the last seven years travelling around this country.
0: Yeah, right. So I guess you, you look at the uh, that IATSIS map of the, I think it's the language groups around the country and language groups might have several tribes and the tribes might have several clans. So there's a lot of parties to deal with, isn't there?
1: that's up to each each that's up to each nation Mm -hmm. uh and um we can't impose ourselves upon them we can merely give guidance and um but the ultimate decision is theirs yeah and um and so after yesterday many of the elders who were there have already put their hand up and said we're going home to start organizing meetings we're going home to start talking to our people and um you know, if if when when I look at the elders who were there yesterday, like, and, and I'm talking about, you know, people who are about to reach their seventies or are already in their seventies, yeah, um, these people were inspired yesterday, yeah, and um, and and the inspiration, you know, just, just was was just like a big, t- you know, tsunami that just went through the room, um, because. You know, they needed to know. They never heard this stuff before, and um, and all of a sudden now, you know, there's this we've we, we ignited a spark of of hope and enthusiasm, and and as I said to them, I can't do it. That's your job. Yeah, that's your nation. Yeah. Now, just on that map you know, that you have, that's a white fella's map. That's not a black fella's map. Right, there are there are nations in there who don't even exist on that map, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the boundaries are, are somewhat skewed. So, um, so I reckon recommend to people put a big red label across that, called, and the word should be warning, yeah. Big <laughs> warning. Read carefully. Be aware of the fact that this is not correct. Yeah. Um, it's it's good because it gives people an idea of what exists, um, but it's not the real descriptive
0: map of this nation yeah yep Yep. so um, yeah so your LEI has uh, taken things a step further um, sort of doing quite an experiment there what what have you been up to in your own place
1: well it's more than an experiment we've actually succeeded Um, you know we the experiment that we did recently is allow a native title process to occur in Queensland, in the Queensland jurisdiction. Um, but um, we've told um, the Queensland government, don't expect us to sign any Iluas because um, we still have un- unfinished business. And so, uh, yeah, we ended up with uh, native title recognition under the, under the Commonwealth Act, and... Um, and we will have a meeting in April um, to talk about uh, where we go with the with the prescribed body corporate. And what's what's important to understand these prescribed body corporates? They're only a imagine- they're, they're like a trustee. Yeah, they're, they're a set of trustees. Unfortunately, a lot of our people think that they make decisions for the people um, once native title is decided. No, 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 that's not right. They're only only holding the title. They're, they're a trustee organisation. They do not. <coughs> override the decisions of the people at the the ground level. So the nations and the clans still have the power to make their own decisions. That PBC is only a a trustee organisation. They they do not make the decisions. Unfortunately, they do in fact right around this country are imposing themselves upon the Aboriginal people under federal law to say, well we're the PBC. we make all the decisions now. That is so wrong, you and um, and people need to understand that that is wrong. And um, um, the the but the other thing that we we said is that you know don't come near us with an with a with a um, ILUA, uh, indigenous land use agreement because we have to work out what we want to do with our land before we start talking about other people using our land. Yeah, um, and then and then the the second part to that. Is that we've already, we've also said that, look, we are a nation state. We've been recognized by the Queen of England. And, um, I have correspondence where the Queen of England recognized me as the leader of the state, of the nation. Um, and of know Michael, Michael Anderson, um, head of state of the UAEA nation, or leader of the UAEA nation. Now, that's, rec- that's a letter from Queen Elizabeth, yeah, um, uh, from Buckingham Palace. Now, that letter, um, establishes, Um, recognition. So that's a head of state to head of state. And unfortunately Australia's stuck with me now as the head of state, as one of the only persons (laughs) in this country um, where the crown, where the queen has recognised a sovereign person, a sovereign nation, um, and recognised the head of state. And that's how we correspond. I might also add that you know the Home Office here in Australia, from the Commonwealth, they write to me as Gilla Mike Lamsen, leader of the nation, or Head of State, um, as well as uh, the New South Wales Premier and uh, Premier and uh, Cabinet, um, they write to me as Giller, Head of State of um, and um, and so I, I, I think we we desperately need uh, to focus attention on the fact that um, that recognition now takes us outside of the legal system within this country, my my nation, and so the 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 native title that we're doing we've done in Queensland now. Um, our next step now is to examine all the different land titles that exist in that country in there because we will be going back to the Queensland government saying, OK, guys, um, you guys better go to the Commonwealth because there's an agreement with the Commonwealth, courtesy John Howard, um, that any compensation that has to be paid the Commonwealth will pay the compensation. So the people of Queensland won't have to do it. The people of Australia are now committed to pay compensation for native title, courtesy John Howard.
0: Yeah, interesting. So let's say that this takes off. Um, uh, then we're going to, I mean, look at the past at Mabo. There was bloody absolute panic around the place of people going, oh, my God, we're going to lose everything. And there was bucket loads of extinguishment being thrown mm-hmm. around and all sorts of stuff. Um, what can people actually expect if if this was to come around what what would say the local farmer or the the guy in the suburbs what could they expect to happen
1: well you know we're not like their grandparents or great-grandparents we're not going to go out there and poison the water holes on them and um, (laughs) and come out with a with a bucket load of guns and you know shoot them all if they don't get off the land um nor are we going to come out there and make their old people drunk and you know um (laughs) and, and talk shit to them um no, we're not going to do that. We're, that's that's uh, yeah, that's how they did it, um, but we're not that uncivilised. Um, the there there is a, a, you know a lot going on here. Um, I, I recall um, the head of the um, uh, what's his name ACT uh, government at that time uh, when John Howard was putting through those amendments in 1998. Um, I remember the ACT government, and you know and a lot of their documents fell off a truck, by the way. And um, so I have um, a lot of correspondence between the ACT Minister, uh, Chief Minister, and the and, and John Howard office, where they said we can't agree uh, to the amendment that you're putting up, because you know you're proposing a bucket load of extinguishment, and then the ACT we're not prepared, we're not prepared to support you if we are going to subject our people in the ACT. Um, to have to pay enormous amounts of compensation to the to the First Nations people, and so John Howard then said, well, okay, the Commonwealth w- agrees uh, to pay any compensation um, that may uh, before uh, your state, the ACP, um, if and when native title is is determined. Um, so, so John Howard had to give that undertaking in order for his. Um, ten point plan to get through to to every state. And so that arrangement's in place. Now, when you talk about, you know, the the farmers and and uh, graziers and you know people in the suburbs, uh, how do they how's Navy title, like like everybody thinks that you know, John Howard's made uh ten point plan finished it all and sort of settled it all. No, 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 no. No, that's not true. Um, yeah, Australia needs to understand um, that Aborigines are going to be... Uh, we'll seek compensation. Don't you worry about that. And uh, we, we, you know, we, we're coming back. There is, an, there is a second wave here um, that's about to hit this country. And, um, and so one of the things that we need to do is if you look at what John Howard did, he, asked, um, he put in there, he tried to use, um, you know, some language, um, colourful language, um, like, for example... Um, there's a clause in there that says, "Oh, um, this Indigenous Land Use Agreement uh, validates past acts." Now, if there was no recognition of our ownership of land and the Crown had title to take all the land, why in the world would they have to now sign a document to say they validate past acts? Yeah, like, like, um, you know, you 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 got to ask yourself. Well, what the hell does that mean? If you're asking Aborigines to validate past acts, well then, hang on a minute, um, you're tricking them now into into signing over land that they still own, right? Um, because the High Court wasn't able to describe the type of tenure that validated um, the taking of land from Aborigines. Um, so the High Court wasn't able to do it, and John Howard has just um, opened a, a new door in his Ten Point Plan and said that, oh, Yeah, black. You know, we get the lawyers. These white lawyers are going to. We're paying their wages to do native titles, so they're not going to tell the Aboriginal people that. um, Wait a minute, let's define what a past act um, really is, and so they're tricking Aboriginal people. You know, they're defrauding the Aboriginal people, and uh, John Howard did that very cleverly. And so they've written into the native title uh, um, process where they sign these indigenous land use agreements, and one of the clauses is that you have to sign a clause that says you, you have, we're validating past acts. Now, they don't say how far that those past acts go back to. right? They don't. So, um, so in other words, all those land grants in the past, by virtue of the fact that they did pass that uh, 10 point plan to validate, asking Aborigines to validate past acts, is in fact a guilt trip. And it's telling us, okay, we have to get these blackfellas to sign off on this year to validate all those illegal, legal titles that we've been given out to white people all over this country. Now, there's a second part to it, and that is um, they call it, um, they, they've asked in all those, if you, if you uh, if Aboriginal people sign this, then you're also surrendering future claims to those lands that you've just validated. So they've asked, there's uh, the, a the clause in there, uh, in those, was asking Aborigines to surrender future claims. And uh, these white lawyers who who are representing Aboriginal people are defrauding them. They are, in fact, these lawyers should be debarred. They should be struck off the list as practising lawyers because they are committing a major offence, a crime against our people, by assisting and advising them, I'll sign the EUA and you'll get this, you'll get that. No, 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 no. No, they are telling lies to our people. They are misrepresenting the facts, uh, the true legal facts. And the question is, um, are they, these lawyers who do native titles, are they uh, employees of the Commonwealth Government, because that's where the salary comes from, through the native title services, or are they, uh, are the Aboriginal people they work for, are they um, the lawyers representing a client and they have to work for that instruction? And quite frankly, I've been involved in some native title claims. And they don't necessarily work to our instructions, let me tell you, because they keep going back to the Native Title Act and say, no, we can only work within the framework of the Native Title Act. If you want to do something else, you have to get another lawyer outside to challenge that system. So Aboriginal people are caught in a bind here, and uh, it's, a, it's a horrible situation. But in, the pro- in, in all of this, you know, Aboriginal people, we don't have money to go out there and get an independent lawyer to get an independent advice. Against what those native title lawyers are telling us, no. We, our people, trust these lawyers to be doing the right thing, and unfortunately, these lawyers are not doing the right thing. Let me tell you, I've, I've, I've been involved. They are not doing the right thing, and they're cheating our people out of it. Now, there's another clause in the in those illus which talks about intermediary um, legalising intermediary acts, and those intermediary acts are all the illegal acts and taking away Aboriginal title land um, after nineteen seventy five to now to the present. That's what they call the Intermediate Act. So like for example where they take away give stock routes and Crown lands, Crown Commons to white farmers or to local governments. And and a lot of our people don't know about that. They don't know about that. They don't know that those stock routes are, are are in fact Crown lands. And subject to the ability to be able to claim compensation. Um, on the other side, let's have a look at um, New South Wales, what New South Wales did in in 1983. New South Wales in 1993, uh, in 1983, um, they passed a law called the Crown Lands Validation Revocation Act. Yeah, And this is where they validated the illegal taking of former re- lands that were reserved for Aboriginal people only, um, and gave them to white farmers, um, to extend their farms, to extend their grazing capacity. Um, and so these were formerly reserves, reserved for Aborigines, and they just took it away. So what did the New South Wales government do? The way they legalized it for white people is that they validated, um, that the theft of that land, and, uh, they gave it away illegally under their own regime. And then they, they establish a the law to validate it. So these white fellows, you know, they, the way they make laws around this country is not to not it's not equality, there's no equity here. And it's always about protecting the white man and the you know and the colonizers. Um so so there's a lot of that going on. The then there's another part in the in those areas um, that says, Oh, um, we um, we authorise that future acts shall be classified as past acts. Now, how stupid is that? Seriously. Like, so, if some local government, let's say the, uh, you know, uh, city of Sydney or let's say the Orange City Council at Orange are parked or cowl up, yeah, and then there's, there's Crown land there, and then all of a sudden these fellows decide, oh, we're going to do a major development on these areas. <coughs> um, then, in that Ilua, you fellows have signed it and agreed to it, so what, you've, what they've done is that they've taken away and given away their right to be to negotiate on that development and be compensated for that development under section 29 of the Native Title Act. The right to negotiate. So, so that um, passing and signing up of uh, future, um, yeah, future development uh, and making that uh, saying that a future act is a past act, um, then um, you know that, that's trickery speak, and um, aboriginal people don't know that they're signing away the rights of their grandchildren or great-grandchildren to have any rights to negotiate on the development of their country anywhere on their land so um you know and and these things have never ever been worked out never ever been discussed amongst aboriginal people and they're sailing along you know like um, without anybody trying to believe that no one's noticing this but there are those of us who are watching this and watching very closely, watching our people sell themselves out for peanuts. And um, this has to stop. And, um, and so and, and, and there is a clause within the Native Title Act where we can revisit a Native Title determination. It's under Section 13. And if you look under Section 13, if a circumstances arise um, that gives rise to um, other factual matters that should have been considered at the time. Um, and um, then the circumstances have changed, the legal circumstances have changed, and we can then make an application to the federal court and go back and undo that. Now, uh, that, that exposes enormous difficulty because, you know, they're going to have to consider compensation and also we then go back into a major, uh, a major crisis um, that will terrify everybody in this country. But it has to be done. And um, so, um, my friend, I, I, you know, to to say that Aboriginal people are being done over, you know, is an understatement. Um, and we, we're setting a pathway now with the elders from the meeting yesterday. So we're going to go back home and start these discussions again and re-examine those native titles. If they've that, uh, done native titles, re-examine what that native title um, is doing to them and has done to them. And so... The Australian public, uh, I just say this to you, that um, John Howard, um, there was a crisis some time ago when John Howard was um, developing these native title amendments. If you may recall, and the public may recall, that um, there was this issue about Robert Mugabe passing laws to take land from white farmers in Zimbabwe. Now, those white farms that he was wanting to take... Um, Believe it or not, that's, they, they were grants under what they call the English Sockage. Um, and English Sockage is where the Crown grants land for their services um, to the country, like in war, for example. Now, here in Australia, they call them soldier settlement grants. Um, and so what they did, they resettled a lot of people um, from the Second World War and even the First World War to places like Kenya, to Zimbabwe, and to other Commonwealth countries in, in Africa, as well as, you know, some of them ended up in Australia as well. And, um, and of course, Australia developed their own system of giving land to um, returned soldiers. Um, the Aborigines, because they were not citizens, were not entitled to hold land, because Aborigines, it was banned in this country that Aborigines were to hold title in this country. Now, just let me pause on that particular point. Aboriginal people, when they came back from the war, and I know several families and them who, who went uh, to the police stations to get their title when their names came out of the hat. When they realized that they were Aborigines, they told them to go away and come back in two weeks. And the, when they went back to the police stations to collect their land titles, the police said, no, that was wrong, that uh, we were given wrong information. As it turned out, it wasn't wrong information. But the law in New South Wales and, and all Australia was that Aborigines were not allowed to own real property. That's why they were banned from holding land. Now, if we look at native title now, all I've, been, I've been researching this, and one of the things that, uh, that I've found is that when Aborigines win and a and native title determination is made, and they win their argument, and prove their continued connection to country, the land title itself, the land that they get back, is not in their name. I'll repeat that. The land titles, when native title is determined, and they get land back under that land determination, the land does not go in the state registry office, on the registry of land, Their names are not on those titles. The name that's on those titles is unused state land. So we need to examine that very closely. Aboriginal people need to know this. And they're not being told that the land that they're getting back under native title is classified and registered as unused state land. So what in the world does that mean? for Aboriginal people. One thing I can tell you is this. The land has no economic value. And so here is a major discrimination against the First Nations peoples because our land is not classified as um, as, as a freehold title or leasehold title. Um, and, and it prevents Aboriginal people from using their land base for any economic purposes whatsoever. And so um, there there are so many things wrong right now. We thought, you know, Gary Foley was correct when he said land rights, native uh, title is not land rights.
0: Just yeah. letting you know, we've, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So.
1: All right. So, so my, um yeah, there, there's so much to be done. Um, we think we've, like one of the I, I suppose okay people say, well well, there are some good things happening yes yeah you know, we we i think we've got a couple of Aboriginal millionaires in this country now um I think we've um nugget goon's um ambition to establish an aboriginal um, um middle class has emerged you know just take a look at Marcy Langton and tom karma um and um and and noel pearson um uh these are the the black middle class as they say um but there, there are um, other people who, who fit into that category who are senior public servants and people who have been awarded all their, all their uh, honours uh, within the English system. Um, then you have... Um, but in the meantime, you know, Aboriginal affairs um, is going wrong. Yeah. We've had great achievements with Aboriginal people who, are now, who have doctorate degrees from universities. We have Aborigines who are, in fact, medical practitioners, legal experts... Um, who don't work for, for their own people and do the right thing. Uh, there are a lot of Aboriginal people, I, I shouldn't say generalise, there are some uh, Aboriginal lawyers who are working with our people and saying, no, wait a minute, the white people are ripping us off. And uh, we, we now know that legal system and we'll get into it with you. I'm, I'm yet to see that happen. Um, but... Uh, and then we've got, you know, school teachers, we've got university professors, we've got uh, all sorts of things, all sorts of people... So there have been some gains in in, in uh, Aboriginal affairs, and I think you know um, per capita, um, if you look at the achievements of Aboriginal people in the education sector, we far out you know outpace uh, the rest of the population um, considering um, our our small population and the achievements that we've we've been able to achieve. So, mate, you know there, there are there are positives um, going forward, but. We've got to look at how does uh, Aboriginal law now get on top of English law and sit side by side. And uh, yesterday, one of the things that the people were talking about is that we now need to establish a pathway to coexistence where Aboriginal law is part of the law of this station. It's recognised as such now, and um, let's make it a reality and let's start working on that. I've looked at a lot of the uh, state inquiries into how they can... Uh, incorporate Aboriginal uh, customary law into the common law, and uh, they get stuck on one point, and that is the rule of evidence, and they can't get past that. Mm. And um, and so state governments and Commonwealth governments are not passing laws for uh, Aboriginal laws to be recognised within their system. Now, we don't need the parliamentary um, Parliament to do that simply because of the fact that um, the common law now recognises it. And Mabo establishes that and a number of other High Court cases establish that. So we don't need we don't need parliamentary uh, rights uh, by way of legislation for that to be recognised. It is recognised. It is part of this country. And Aborigines will start those impressing upon Australia. And the, in the various regions, our law is equal to your common law. And so um, there's a clash. And unless you start talking to us, um, yeah, there will be legal confrontations uh, that may not be too, um, yeah, too, appet- too, too appetising for the uh, for the general public.
0: Yes. All right, well, we have to wrap up there. Gillard, thanks heaps for joining us, and uh, if you've got the time, I'd like to follow up soon with um, a, a, another talk, uh, maybe more about uh, we've set the stage of where we are, but where we actually could go from here.
1: Well, mate, I, I think... Um, I think that, that would be great, and, um, um, but the, the next I might like to um, bring a couple of other people on board.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: who, who, who will say, you know, we, so that we can say, look, we've had these meetings and this is where we're going. So I'd like the people, the nations now, to talk about where they're going with their, with their um, pathway um, to self-determination and self-governance.
0: Fantastic. And they're going to, have
1: to rec- they're going to recognize that because we're doing it under our law. We're not doing it under their law. So yep. move over, Australia, wake up,
0: wake <laughs> up. <laughs> Beautiful. Gillard, thanks heaps. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-Ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or Nina, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio, Two X 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see doublexfm.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocambra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full time with this and lots of other related work, look up Libera Pay, L I B E R A P A Y and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.